Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor for the South China Morning Post, coming to you from a temporary studio several thousand kilometers away from Hong Kong, as I, like many, wait for a room in a quarantine hotel to become available. And as we move towards 180 days of Russia's vicious war upon the people of Ukraine, with no sign of any of the superpowers wanting to talk about peace, elsewhere in the world it's been another tumultuous week. We've seen the Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands, Manasseh Sogavare, rule out the prospect of a Chinese military base not long after he asked for, and received, a hug from the Australian Prime Minister at the Pacific Forum in Fiji. China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi completed an intensive 11-day whirlwind tour across Southeast Asia, visiting Thailand, the Philippines, Indonesia, Myanmar and Malaysia, signing multiple agreements on high-speed railroads, fishing rights, investment, and much, much more. We heard the former US National Security Advisor John Bolton on CNN saying the quiet part out loud to Jake Tapper when rejecting the idea that his former boss, Donald Trump, planned a coup d'etat of the American government. One doesn't have to be brilliant to attempt a coup. Uh, I disagree with that. As somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat, not here, but, you know, other places, uh, it takes a lot of work. We received news that Sri Lanka's president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, had fled his country to the Maldives, but was now on his way to Singapore on a jet operated by Saudi Arabia's national airline. And today, we learned earlier this week, China's President Xi Jinping made a visit to Xinjiang, the first visit in eight years, coming just a few weeks after crippling bans on Xinjiang cotton made by the Biden administration came into effect. In this week's episode, you're going to hear from my colleague Laura Zhou in Beijing about China's deep links to the Sri Lankan economy and Beijing's long relationship with the Rajapaksa family, as well as some analysis about debt trap diplomacy and what it means for China's 99-year lease on Sri Lanka's second largest port, the port of Hambantota. And we're going to look deeper into how one Dutch company holds the keys to China's semiconductor industry. This week, we found out the Dutch foreign minister is talking to the US about putting those keys out of reach. I'll be calling on podcast veteran and technology desk editor Joe Sin to let us know what that means for Beijing's economy and its plans to become self-sufficient in all things tech. Now remember, the issues you hear about in this episode are what we call developing news. You'll get the latest updates and analysis from our 24-hour newsroom at scmp.com. Let's get amongst it. Laura Zhou is a veteran diplomacy correspondent for the SEMP based in Beijing and a perennial guest on this podcast. Great to have you back on the line, Laura. Hi, good morning. Laura, we're reading and seeing these you know, astonishing images coming out of Sri Lanka as the president and prime minister have now fled 
the country and the people have taken over the presidential palace and numerous government buildings. But for those of us who've been following China's Belt and Road investment for the past years, there's a story in the background about the level of Chinese investment in Sri Lanka, as well as Beijing's relationship with the government of the now ousted president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa. Can you tell us more about that? Let's start with the Rajapaksa family who've been in power for decades now. What do we know about their relationship with Beijing? The Rajapaksa family is one of the most powerful political families in Sri Lanka and has ruled the country for most of the past two decades. During the presidency of Gotabaya Rajapaksa, Sri Lanka has signed a number of major infrastructure deals with China, including the most famous deal, the Hampen Tota Port, which was leased to a Chinese firm in 2017 under a 99-year deal as part of a controversial debt for equity swap. Laura, it's quite interesting that, you know, being Australian, I recall the 99-year lease deal signed for the port of Darwin uh, to a Chinese firm. So there's a lot going on there. We'll talk about the Hampton Tota port in just a few minutes. But, you know, cutting to this week's news, Laura, has there been any official statement from Beijing about what is happening in Sri Lanka right now? Yes, on Tuesday, the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin um, said that China will continue to offer assistance for Sri Lanka's social development, economic recovery, and the improvement of people's livelihood. But he didn't give any details on how the loan negotiations between the two countries are going on only said that China will work with other countries and international financial institutions to help Sri Lanka to ease its debt burden and achieve a sustainable development. That's quite interesting, Laura, because we've previously reported that Sri Lanka has reached out to, to Beijing for a, a major loan uh, to you know, tie them over. It sounds like Beijing is taking a maybe a wait-and-see approach to see how things sort of pan out in in the days and weeks to come. What are your sources telling you about Beijing's relationship with the opposition parties in Sri Lanka, assuming that they will take over as a new government? I was told that Beijing has maintained uh, good relationships, not just with the family, but also with the other political parties in Sri Lanka. And at this moment, because of this political instability in these countries, um, countries like China, Japan, or the US are unlikely to step in until the situation is calmed down and to see if the talks can go on. But at this moment, it's not a good timing. I get the feeling that the news cycle will turn to this side of the world because as I as I speak to you, I've just seen a tweet from a BBC reporter saying that there's a press pack waiting in Singapore because they think that Sri Lanka's now ousted president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, is about to land in Singapore, having fled to the Maldives. So we'll see what happens on that. But let's talk about this issue of debt uh, and, and China's investment in Sri Lanka over the years We've reported on the substantial investment of Chinese companies into Sri Lanka, 
And of course, you know, there's the issue of the Hambantota port and the Belt and Road project, but just the broader narrative, this concept that there's a debt trap. You've looked into just how much money the Sri Lankan government owes Chinese banks. What did you find? Actually, Sri Lanka owes about like 10% of its debt to China. It's in similar situation as to Japan. The most part is owned to Western countries or international institutions. Actually, the top three debt holders of Sri Lanka government's debt are BlackRock from the US, the Ashmore Group from the UK, and the Allianz from Germany. That's fascinating. And of course, we've heard about the BlackRock financial group here uh, on this podcast in discussion about investment in Xinjiang, which is an entirely different episode. But let's get across this issue of the Hambantota port. There's been huge amounts of analysis and opinion published about this and this deal that made the Hambantota port part of China's Belt and Road program. Again, this debt trap narrative is that Sri Lanka was forced into a deal to give a 99-year lease to China to pay off its debts. But what's the reality? Uh, The Hambantota port is a deep water port in Hambantota. It's the second largest port in the country. The project was first proposed by Sri Lanka government at the time. And at the time, the government tried to seek funding from Western funding agencies and even India, but none was interested. So the Sri Lanka government approached Chinese government. And after two to three years of negotiations, China finally said yes. Both China and Sri Lanka governments have rejected the claim that this is a debt chart that Sri Lanka is falling in, especially the money it's received from this lease, the 99-year lease, was not used to repay the Chinese loans, but to those taken from the Western financial institutions. That's really interesting, uh, Laura. And and if we go back through the years of reporting that we've done on the Hampton Tota port and the deal, you can see that you know back in you know 2015 there was an issue for Sri Lanka about you know maturing foreign loans, about foreign debt, and not enough foreign reserves to pay them off. And it's not just the port itself; there's an industrial park attached, and you know, there's a number of major Chinese companies, including, I think, last year in September, there was an announcement of an MOU with a Chinese-based car manufacturer to build a factory there in the industrial park. Have you heard anything else about the other Chinese companies that are invested in Sri Lanka at the moment? Has there been any official statements or have you heard anything from your sources? As I know, the Sri Lanka government has tried really hard to attract the Chinese investments and also the Chinese factories to invest in this industrial park near the Hambantota Park. But I haven't go into many details of these deals. It sounds like it's very much a wait-and-see approach, both for the Chinese companies and the Beijing central government. Laura, I'm sure you're making lots of calls and and emails trying to find out what's coming up next. We'll look for your next report and analysis on scmp.com. Laura Zhou, thank you once again. Thank you. As tensions flare between China and other nations, it's important to understand how this affects the rest of the world. 
Our weekly Global Impact Newsletter, sent by email, will help you stay informed with expert insights. Sign up at scmp.com slash newsletters. Now, you would, of course, remember that this podcast was previously known as the US-China Trade War Update. And there is a significant update on that this week. If you're waiting for a new car or trying to buy a new laptop or other electronic device, there's a very good chance you've heard of the global shortage of semiconductors. And if you've been following this podcast for the past couple of years, you'd also know that the US is seeking to target China and Chinese companies on three main fronts. These fronts are otherwise known as the trade war, the accounting war, and the tech war. So far in the tech war, we've seen the Trump government ban Huawei from expanding 5G technology within the US. We've also seen an escalation carried over from the Trump era into the Biden administration by placing tighter and tighter restrictions on US companies supplying software and components to Chinese tech companies and sanctioning Chinese companies from selling to the US. Somewhere in the vicinity of a thousand companies, according to China's foreign ministry. But late this week, we saw a significant escalation from the US in terms of the actual production of semiconductors. It's one thing to have the money and the know-how to make semiconductors, but first you have to buy the machine that makes them. Specifically, you need something called an extreme ultraviolet lithography machine, an EUV. This machine is valued at over 150 million US dollars. Now, these are used by the likes of the dominant global player in semiconductors, Taiwan's TSMC. They're also used by Samsung. And the US has already had the sale of EUVs banned to China. But there's also a machine one step down from the EUV, and that's the DUV, which is responsible for the kinds of chips that go into cars, smart homes, that level of consumer technology. This machine is about the size of a bus, and only one company in the world makes them. It's a company called ASML. And this is where things get complicated, because ASML are not an American company. They're Dutch. Now, for the past weeks, the SEMP tech team has been running stories about American officials putting pressure on their Dutch counterparts to get ASML to ban the sale of these DUV machines to China. But today, we received the news that the Dutch Foreign Minister Vupke Hoekstra confirmed that the Netherlands and the US are holding formal discussions on blocking ASML from selling its technology to China. And thus, I've got SEMP's tech desk editor and podcast champion, Josin, back on the line to talk about what comes next. Josin, I've just mentioned we've seen reports of US officials talking to their Dutch counterparts about banning the sale of this technology, but now the Dutch foreign minister has confirmed he's having these discussions. How big a deal is this? Well, Jared, that's very interesting because it's like the Washington says something and then Dutch uh, feels that it has to respond. But remember, it's uh, ASML is a commercial company. It's basically the United States saying, you should give up your biggest clients, one of your most profitable businesses. And ultimately, it will be decided by, I think, you know, by ASML to see uh, whether it's really worth to follow the uh, the orders from Washington to do so. And, and also, when we're talking about this, we have to be uh, clear that, you know, SMIC, right? SMIC, uh, S-M-I-C, China's top chip maker, has been importing all the kind of required equipments from U.S. suppliers as well. Yes, it is on the trade uh, blacklist, 
yes, if the U.S. merchant is going to sell something to uh, SMIC, they have to apply for a special license. But that kind of uh, trade flow has been there. So it's not really, really convincing, you know, to tell for the U.S. to tell the uh, Dutch companies saying you should stop doing business with the Chinese clients, while the U.S. merchants are still doing business with the with the with the China client. And also, Jared, when you're looking at uh, the um, the China side, just a few days ago, SMIC just uh, make basically makes announcement saying they have never been doing any business with Russian clients. So basically, this is a blocking. This is giving no excuse to Washington to to escalate the the the, the trade sanctions. Say, you know, we know that Gina Remodo has said something saying, if you were caught red-handed by supplying equipments to Russia clients, we're going to cut you off. And now uh, SMIC is coming saying, with an on-the-record statement saying, no, we never do this. We always comply with all these regulations. So there's really no excuse for the United States to escalate uh, the uh, the sanctions. So I think from the Dutch minister's point of view, yes, there's some messages from the uh, from Washington, I have to say something. But there's still a long, long way to go to say, okay, we Dutch will, will always follow what, what Washington wants and uh, go to ASML and telling ASML to stop supplying uh, to Chinese clients. The Netherlands, the Dutch have a, you know, they have a history with the US, but it, we talk about modern times. They're not part of the five eyes. They're not part of the quad. Uh, it just seems like a, a big ask for the US to turn to this company who I, I, I note their third largest market after Taiwan and South Korea is mainland China. And how do you go about getting a company to cut off that huge source of income? Exactly, Jared. And also, some of the equipments are so like mainstream now. For instance, some of the DOV equipments has been there for like over ten years, and there are so many second-hand equipments in the market. You know, there's almost like no point of of saying you know you you have to stop selling these equipments to 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 China because they are available kind of alternative there in the, in in the marketplace. It's not like the EOV, you know, you have, every single one has been uh, already ordered. You know, there's no, there's a very real, real tight supply. But for these kinds of mainstream or mature technology equipment, there's really, commercially, there's really no point to do, to do so, apart from showing kind of a political gesture. Which just makes me think, Josine, what happened if ASML, you know, the Dutch government agreed to this? What, what would happen to the Chinese economy? Could you... I mean, could you forecast what would that impact be? Well, first of all, we're talking very, uh, this is a bit, very big if, saying that the Dutch will agree to the U.S. demands. And also, secondly, I, I don't think there will be huge kind of impact. As I just said, you know, uh, for China's current technology level, they, of course, if they can get the EUVs, that's uh, that's the best option. But if they cannot get the, the most up-to-date equipment, they're okay with these uh, uh, widely available equipments. So uh, the impact is quite limited, actually. And also, when, when China was uh, thinking of uh, planning all these kind of new plants in Shenzhen, in uh, Beijing, uh, SMIC is still on course of development. And also, when ask, answering questions from journalists, they always say, OK, you know, the equipment could be some risks, but uh, we are quite sure it's, it's, it's under control. So you can see that they also have certain confidence that the, 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 the flow will be there, the trade flow will be there. So... If you know the the, um, the Dutch company really say we have to stop all the business deals with our mainland China clients, so on what kind of basis? So for 
as well, well, kind of what kind of reason to tell their clients to say we have to stop the businesses with simply because Washington doesn't like our business relationship? That's not a very strong reason. And, and just on that, as I mentioned, you know, the, the great John Carter sort of initially proposed that idea of there's the trade war, the accounting war, and the tech war. This seems like, you know, the US trying to open up another front, you know, with the Dutch. What else do you see from the US in their moves on this so-called tech war against Chinese businesses? What else is happening at, at this week? Well, I think that the tech war is still, uh, we are still on the very early, early stage. So um, from the Washington's perspective, of course, uh, they have been doing this against the Soviet Union a few decades ago, and the result is quite good for them. So they want to repeat this to, to China. But I say the circumstances are completely different this time. So it, it would be very, very much more difficult because China's economy is so integrated with the rest of the world. And, and China has so many like talented scientists. And you look at all these kind of Chinese startups, uh, funders, entrepreneurs. You know, many of them are, are, are kind of like top researchers or top students directly graduated from the, the, the top U.S. schools. And also, um, they are just, you know, so deep the relationship there. So technology exchange is part of this, like, economic uh, links. So the U.S. may be able to, like, specifically say, oh, this very specific technology uh, we have to put on the blacklist. Uh, or a very specific Chinese company like Huawei have to go through additional or extreme scrutiny. But I don't see like how a tech war can start from all fronts and say we don't have to, to have any kind of relationship, technology exchange with, with China. If the U.S. really wants to do this, then it's almost like a complete decoupling, which is unimaginable given you just look at China's trade data. You just look at China's, uh, you know, uh, imports and exports. You can see that the flows are, are still quite strong. Josie, so you have a lot of sources in the industry. How far off are Chinese companies from making their own lithography machines? Jared, for this for this information, you don't need any sources. It's uh, it's uh, it's it's open. Okay, China has failed completely uh, trying to make its uh, 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 its own EUV because this is called the number two project. Basically, China spent ten years uh, interested with a state-owned enterprise in, in Shanghai and trying to making uh, the machine that can uh, reduce reliance on, uh, on SML, and this this is going nowhere. So China is almost like on a, on the ground zero again, and that's why you know the US is. Uh, uh, is making these threats because they, they know that China doesn't doesn't have this ability to uh, to even remotely match the latest equipment. So on that particular point, yes, China is still far far away behind, and that's the weak link of uh, uh, of China's uh, semiconductor in the industry. So no one's buying Atari computers anymore, but uh, everyone's still buying iPhones. In a, the US sees that as a weak point. That's quite interesting, Jason. Jason, you spoke about the the integration between you know the Chinese economy, the manufacturing base, uh, the American consumer economy. We're talking about this possible example of a Dutch company removing this technology, but are there other examples of? Oh, there are plenty, Jared. There, there are plenty of these kind of examples. L look at you know the latest, uh, um, the, the, the hottest auto chip. Uh, you know the chip used to, to uh, in uh, controlling an actual vehicle. It's made by Qualcomm. It's it's a Snapdragon, and almost like half of China's electric vehicles 
or at least half of the models are, are, are promoting this, uh, this chip. And the Qualcomm is make, make a killing because they know that they just uh, go there and say, we have this uh, magnificent chip, you know, it's much better than your own locally developed ones. Are you willing to use it? And every electric vehicle uh, in China basically saying, okay, since our competitors are using it, I'm going to use it as well. The US always saying like, okay, we have to reduce the, the Chinese purchase of US technologies. We have to, you know, limit the supply of chips to the Chinese companies. But on the other hand, we can see like, this is, a, this is an integrated supply chain. So, you know, China is, is a big maker of electrical vehicles, but the CPU or the, or the chip that controlling the, uh, the, the driving room, you know, how to empower all these multiple screens, et cetera, all these sen sensoring devices is made by Qualcomm. And, and thus we see the, the capitalist imperative once again trumping, dare I say the word trumping, the idea of the ideology of the two nations battling for things. Josine, it's always educational and informative talking to you. We'll follow your work and your tech team's work at scp.com. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jared. That's all for now for China Geopolitics, but of course the news keeps churning. Keep up to date at scp.com, 24 hours a day. Keep up with the Political Economy Desk at SCP Economy on Twitter. I'm at J underscore what. Great to have you aboard. Thanks for listening. Speak to you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course. And I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.